welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Navid Nazemian about executive transitions. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done it already. Now, let's get into it. Naveed, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Now, Naveed, in your book, you cite that four out of 10 executives don't make it. Now, this is an astonishing statistic, considering the potential cost of a failed hire at a senior level. Could you unpack this statistic for us and explain what you mean by they don't make it? Yes, absolutely. So first off, when I started doing the research for my book, I could not believe it myself. So when I read the the first data point I got around this and the fact that 40% don't make it, I couldn't quite believe it. So I went and started digging and uh, I found four different studies that all come to the same conclusion. And I think out of the four, the most validated one is one that was publicized by Heidegger Struggles, one of the largest search firms in the world. And they had looked at Um, over 20,000 executive placements that they had made uh, over the course of a 10-year time period. And 40% of those were not in the role anymore 18 months into the appointment. And of course, the promotions were excluded from this. And let's face it, David, it's exceptionally rare that at the C-level you get a promotion after 18 months uh, Mm. in, in any case. But yes, those were not around. That means they had either been pushed out failed or quit and uh, essentially left the, uh, left the position or the company. Wow. And, I mean, it's astonishing. It's even more astonishing as a, as a result of that detail. Now, I'm sure it's different for, for each role and, and each organization, Naveed, but what's the potential cost of this level of failure? Yes. Um, I remember very well when I was hired by a very uh, amazing company called Adidas, Uh, over 20 years ago, um, I uh, had a project to deliver on and the project had to do with attrition. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very uh, keen to uh, demonstrate that if you get this right, that there is an upside for the organization. And the number, the multiple that I found back then was two and a half times. So if you have an employee that you hire, if that employee fails shortly after they have been hired, then the total cost to the company is roughly two and a half times the salary of that individual. Because you have things like, you know, obviously there's a cost involved with hiring people. There's a cost involved with people coming in but not performing. There's a ripple effect that is created when people are not doing what they're supposed to do. And uh, ultimately, there's also a cost that comes with the position being vacant. Someone else has to kind of, you know, occupy that chair for a, a period of time and so on and so forth. Uh, unfortunately, at the executive level, the cost factor is more like 10 to 30 times the executive salary. And I would be very happy to give you an, a concrete example of you know, how you can really get into these heights when we talk about the cost of failure at the executive level. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, it, I mean, it's, ast- it's absolutely astonishing. It's eye-watering figures. Um, and I know from my experience when uh, um, when when I was at Disney, you know, I was aware of uh, of, of C-suites 
uh, hires. Uh, and sometimes me and my team were invited in to, uh, uh, to help out uh, a little bit. But, but I would say that beyond the immediate line manager, there wasn't really anything else particularly done. Uh, and I think that, um, that, that I suppose there's one thing to be said for um, the, the president of the company wanting to take care of it. But I think that there's also a massive risk if only the president of the company uh, is looking to take over it. But after all, it's got to be one of the most high pressure jobs in the uh, the organization to be the president. But, you know, the, I suppose the, uh, the, the 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 million dollar question uh, is what's going on for senior executives that makes for such a high failure rate? Yes. So first off. Um, the example I would like to use is, again, when I joined Adidas, um, there were multiple employee groups that you can, could sign up for. I went for running because I was a hobby uh, runner, I, you know, nothing too serious. And I really thought I'm working for the world famous Three Stripes. And, you know, what better way to engage uh, about something that I'm already a little skilled at? And believe it or not, I had to perform a test because there were 12 or 14 different running uh, groups. And of course, they wanted to make sure that if you sign up for a running group, you're, you're kind of calibrated to be of similar kind of skill. And so I ended up in group number six. And um, the first thing that uh, I was told when the trainer took over kind of my you know, addition to the group, he said, listen, um, you know, I've seen your results. You're absolutely right. You know, at the right level in this group, you're going to have a lot of fun. And there's one thing I want to offer you, which is we offer that to every new member who joins this, this group. And that is, if you wanted to run the marathon a year from now, you just need to let me know and we'll work with you to prepare you so that in a year's time, you're able to run the marathon. And so I was curious. I didn't quite know whether I wanted to do that. But I said, so what would that include, for instance? Can you give me an idea? And he said, there will be things like, you know, some exercise regime. And of course, you need to do more than running in order to be fit enough to run the marathon. Mm -hmm. The second thing has got to do with nutrition. So again, you know, there will be foods that are more helpful uh, for you to build up the stamina and the condition and foods and drinks that are uh, quite unhelpful as well as uh, sleep and, and kind of recreation and, rest, you know, restoration and rest. So, so, you know, we will work with you and prepare you so that you're able to run the first marathon. Now, I would like to use the same analogy, David, uh, for executives in transition. And that is most of the executives that I know of, including myself, we went through a career transition, a professional transition without any professional guidance, support or help. And of course, this is one of the main reasons why it doesn't work out all the time, because, you know, um, if I had an attempt uh, to run my first marathon, I may have succeeded, I may not have. But boy, how much better the experience would be, how much more skilled that, you know, guidance and, and being, being kind of, you know, supported by someone who's done that multiple times over would it be if I had taken up that kind of support. So this is one of the reasons but in my book, I actually talk about, the, it's a full chapter that I dedicate to this topic, which is what are the top 10 reasons for failure? And why is I don't want to you know, recite all of those top 10 reasons for, for the sake of the podcast, what we can do is to group them into three kind of group reasons. And believe it or not, David, the three group reasons are people, politics, and culture. Mm. So it's rare that you hire a chief finance officer 
and he or she isn't good in managing the balance sheet. It's exceptionally rare that you hire a chief people officer and he or she isn't really good at managing the people agenda. So it's not the technical skills that often gets in the way, but it's the supposed soft skills or what we say in HR uh, is, is the ingredient for success for any leader. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I uh, I was actually uh, in conversation with uh, with uh, with a friend of mine, Guy Wallace, who's uh, uh, who's very very influential in uh, in learning and development. Uh, he he's, he he uh, always takes exception to the term soft skills. He said they're only soft when they're out of context. If you understand the context in which people use them, they're actually very hard skills. But uh, but of course, when you isolate those, those those skills and you try to teach them without understanding what it is that people try to uh, are trying to do with them, that's when they they they're deemed softer. So uh, so I, you know from my experience again at, uh, at Disney when I was supporting the C-suite on different initiatives, it's a it's a level of um uh, of exposure that uh, that that you have to them uh that 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 when you get to know them uh candidly uh, and personally you then you begin to understand some of the challenges that they face but all i would say in addition to that is at the more junior levels of my uh, of uh, of my learning and development career i had absolutely no idea what they did and what they needed uh, and, and was certainly in no position to to support because the theory behind uh, behind uh, what an executive does uh, is is as different as it could possibly be to to the to the to the actual experience, and and I actually read um, a little while ago, probably about five six years ago, David, in a Harvard article that it it can take a couple of years for an executive to start performing at the required level. Now, is this inevitable, and do you think executives quit before they hit their stride due to failures in their transition? Yes, but before I come back to that, I just wanted to throw in one more data point around the failure rate because I really can't emphasize that uh, enough. And that is, um, you know, I call it the advice trap, okay? Mm. And that's a particularly prominent issue at the very top. So part of what I do as a coach is working with the C-suite on their own transition. Mm. And um, increasingly over the last two or three years, uh, the the C-suite leaders that come to work with me happen to be chief executive officers, so CEOs, and they then report into a chairman or a chairwoman. And so part of what I do on their behalf is I conduct 360 type interviews. These are qualitative interviews that I conduct on behalf of their CEO. And obviously, uh, you know, it includes uh, sometimes the peers, uh, members of the board, the chairman, the chairwoman, and so on. And what's fascinating is when I ask, you know, simple, straightforward questions such as, what do you think are the biggest challenges that so-and-so is facing? I speak to a chairman, I speak to board number, member number one, board member number two, and so on. And you get a very different idea around what is crucial to the mission of the organization at times, mm-hmm. what is crucial to the success of the incumbent, of the, of the CEO, what is the expected level of performance of that individual, and so on and so forth. So sometimes you hear things like, oh, he or she must challenge the, the, the peers and the organization. And then you speak to two other members of the same board and they say, mm, actually, my, my advice would be for them to f- simply follow their playbook. Then you speak to somebody else and they say, mm, I think you know, he or she would be you know, well off if they were to score points early on. You know, they should really go for the quick wins as quickly as possible and make them visible. And someone else 
actually, I would like them to be a fly on the wall, take their time, don't rush over things and so on. So you see how supposedly the same board of directors can have very different viewpoints around what the CEO should or shouldn't be doing. And that is part of the you know contradictory kind of advice that I describe in my book as well. And again, the idea behind doing those interviews on behalf of the exec is also to highlighting the fact that, for instance, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of alignment at the board level. And this is something that you ought to pick up with the chairman because, you know, the last thing you want to do is doing what you think are the right things and priorities and half of the board being very unhappy about the results because in their opinion, you're not really delivering against, you know, what is your key priority. So it's it's really, it can really become super tricky at the very top, but there are always ways and methods to help with that. Yeah, wonderful. And, and so, so, um, so the question I just asked um, about uh, how long it can take for an executive to start performing, uh, and it can, you know, and it taken perhaps a, a couple of years. Would you say that that's inevitable? And do you see um, examples of executives quitting before they actually hit their stride? Yes. So I think there are a few things to point out here. Uh, one of them is that the average tenor for a lot of executives has just been, you know, getting shorter and shorter. Mm. Um, you know, the number that I cite in my book is that if you look at the S&P 500, these are the largest capitalized companies in the U.S. Um, and if you look at the CEO tenor, uh, it's come down to 5.9 years mm. on average. Uh, so gone are the days where the CEO would be hired and 20 years later, they would, you know, um, hand over the baton to the successor and so on. So it's less than six years on average. Mm -hmm. And one out of seven CEOs don't get to celebrate their, um, you know, third anniversary. So again, you know, it's it's extremely short. I mean, at the, at the very top, you know, we used to have the rule at Vodafone, we used to call it the 357 rule. So at the very top, the absolute minimum you should be spending in a position is three years. Ideally, you spend five years in that role and you shouldn't spend you know, more than seven years in the same role. That excluded the C-level. So that was like the level reporting up to the C-suite. So, so that's one factor that we have to bear in mind. The other factor, and I know it's, it's not a popular thing to say, but there's this very famous and popular book out there, The First 90 Days, that, you know, I, I love the book. I read it back in 2008. It was already five years old when I got it into my hands. It's by now 20 years old. And boy, I wished transitions at the very top were that easy, you know, where you start on day one, you're done after day 90. Mm -hmm. so, so this is why my model, the framework that I introduced in my book, looks at the transition uh, period to be anywhere between 12 to 18 months. That is the, the more realistic time frame that I believe applies to the C-suite and maybe the, even the layer below. So that's the other angle to that. And then third, um, I would say, what's also important is I look at the key statistic in my book, which is, I call it time to productivity or time to break uh, even productivity levels. What I mean by that is if you're hired at the C-suite, obviously there's a large amount of investment that has gone into you. And let's face it, even if you are brought in as a CEO, the first couple of months, you're really learning. You're really trying to understand how this organization works, what the culture is all about, what aspects of the culture you want to keep, which aspects you want to, ch to change. And so that time frame is somewhere between three to nine months. 
And there are methods how it can reduce that time frame by 50% or more. So I would say on average, it takes an executive at the C-suite, particularly if they have been brought in from the outside world. Uh, so they haven't been internally promoted. It's more around the six to nine months uh, mark. And that's kind of a realistic time frame to just hit the, the, the zero point, right? Mm -hmm. It's not to start giving back, but that's like the starting point of giving back. And of course, you know, for, for some executives or some embattled companies, it may not happen in two years' time because there's just one crisis after crisis after crisis coming the way. Yeah, and you, you mentioned there about uh, uh, the, the the different types of, uh, of of transition, and you you mentioned there about uh, about an internal promotion. Would would you say that the problems that you've uh, that that we've recited so far around executives not making it are mainly promotions to executive level within an organization, or executives moving across uh, organizations, or both? Yes. Yeah, so, so when I looked at the 40% figure, I, I also looked at studies that were trying to differentiate between internal promotions and external hires. And believe it or not, the, the numbers are not significantly different. Um, so, so one um, study cited that the internal promotion failure rate at the very top is somewhere between 33 to 43%. So, so the average is 37 or, or something like that. And then um, if you look at the, the same study that they were suggesting that the external hire rate is more between 37 and 47 percent. So, so the average tends to be around the 42, 43 percent mark. And this is why I, I made the claim in my book to say nearly half of all executive transitions are a failure. So it's a little less risky to be promoted from within. And I think everyone can understand why that would be the case. But the reality is not every board decides for that. And also, even then, there is a one out of three kind of, you know, chances of failure. So, so in essence, executive transitions are highly, you know, uh, risky, uh, whether you're an internal promoted, promoted leader or an external hire. So, so you mentioned the, uh, the, the three pillars earlier uh, that, uh, that, that, that kind of um, uh, outline the, the challenges executive face. And, and I wonder for the for the benefit of the listener who hasn't been at uh, the, the, you know, the level that we're talking about, which is going to be the vast majority of, uh, of listeners, if not all, um, what are the challenges that executives face that we can't possibly know if we haven't made the transition ourselves? So I wonder if this is kind of like opening a window, opening a little doorway into uh, into their world so that we can gain an appreciation Sure. David, if you agree, I use one of my own examples to highlight this. Mm. And, you know, by doing that, I really want to kind of hammer in the point that the same appointment can include multiple challenges. It's, mm -hmm. you know, imagine if this is a burger, you've got five patties on it. And now good luck trying to eat that, right? <laughs> You're not allowed to use your cutlery. So, so this is really, it becomes really, you know, not, not really edible. So this is when I was headhunted to come and join a, a fantastic company uh, called Roche. Uh, it's a pharmaceutical company, a big giant company. And so I had been very successful as an HR leader, arguably successful um, in doing, you know, local roles, area roles and regional roles. And this was the reason why that company hired me to come and do my first global HR role. Now, mind you, I was responsible for roughly 300 people. It was a European R&D organization, all based in Europe, eight locations. And I really was thriving on, in that role. 
And so I got my, you know, this is the first challenge that I had to deal with, which was I got my big promotion challenge. Why? Because I had never done a global role before. And all the tricks of the trade that I applied into my regional role couldn't quite cut it for that new position because, you know, give me one time zone that works for an alignment call with 140 countries, mm. right? There isn't any. Or try to meet your key stakeholders face-to-face during the first month of your employment. Well, there aren't enough flights for me to, to be able to do that. So, so I was suddenly, you know, confronted with a new reality. So that was my big promotion challenge. Mm. The second challenge that I was faced with was, obviously, I had never worked in a pharma sector before. And Rush as an organization was new to me. So I call it the new organization challenge. And as a matter of fact, it's a fun fact about my career. I've spent 26 years working for some of the world's most admired companies. And as a matter of fact, I've never repeated the same industry. Mm-hmm. Right? So I've always transitioned into a brand new industry that had nothing to do with the previous ones. So that was a new industry and a new company for me. So that's two challenges being stacked as we speak. The third challenge that I was faced with, and of course, David, no organization will ever admit that this thing exists in, in, in their organization, which is called politics. Mm-hmm. I, I humbly refer to it as the corporate diplomacy challenge. I think it's a much nicer word to, to say what it actually <laughs> is. So, um, yes, I was based at the global head office. And believe it or not, if you work in a country operation or in a regional organization and suddenly move into the global head office, if whether you like it or not, the reality is that there is a lot more, more politics at play at at you know at that level of the organization. So here I go. I got three challenges already on my hand. Then the fourth challenge for me was the fact that I moved from Germany to the German-speaking part of Switzerland. And again, some would argue that you know what what's a big deal? It's the same kind of language, uh, although it's a different country technically. You know, th- there shouldn't be really a big adjustment required. Well. Um, I would invite those people to move from London to Dublin or from Dublin to Glasgow. And arguably, these are all English-speaking uh, places. But boy, culturally and, and leadership-wise and, and, and so on, there will be very, very different um, you know, um, things to bear in mind. So, so that was then uh, stacked up to my role. And then the, the other one that I had uh, never uh, imagined before was the fact that the role that the company hired me into did not exist before mm-hmm. so they had created this role and headhunted me into it which also meant that you know particularly the first three months I was treading over other people's responsibility areas and you can imagine how delighted they were about that <laughs> so suddenly I pick up bits and pieces of what they used to be doing and of course I just took it because it was part of my remit it was described in my wonderful role profile and boy whether it was described there or not I really, you know, was was walking over a few landmines here and there. And again, that really didn't help me, uh, you know, to, to land effectively into the role. And so you see how one single appointment can include a stacking of multiple very unique challenges. And of course, chances are the more challenges you are faced with at the same time, the more likelihood that you may not make it and you you may fail as a result. Yeah, that's a, that's a big burger already, David. There's uh, there's relish all over uh, all over the place. Um, you, you, you said there about uh, about politics. Uh, the, one of one of the advantages I had of uh, at Disney was uh, the acknowledgement 
throughout that it was a highly political organization. There was, in fact, uh, a book published called Disney Wars uh, that uh, that talks about the, the the history of the politics right from uh, from Walt's days right through to Michael Eisner and then uh, and then Bob Iger. So there's there's no uh, there's no secret of the fact that uh, that it's political. Uh, and um, I, I bought and read the book, and, I, and I'd say that uh, that the acknowledgement that uh, I love that phrase you used. What was uh, what was that uh, organizational diplomacy? Corporate diplomacy. Uh, corporate diplomacy. Yeah, I think that the more organisations should admit that they're political, uh, and I love the phrase uh, that uh, that uh, give give people a a map of the terrain. Don't just make up the terrain and say this is how you should operate, uh, because you know it, it helps absolutely no one. I, w- I wonder, um, uh, Naveed, if there are any common pitfalls that you see. You, you must be invited into plenty of organisations and, and and speak to plenty of executives. So I wonder if there are any common pitfalls um, that organisations fall into when they attempt to support executives uh, or perhaps they don't try to support executives enough. Yes. So I think I would definitely underline this statement there is a lot more that organisations can do to support their executives in transition. And and I, I am allowed to say that because I've worked for at least five in uh, of the world's most admired companies. And none of them really quite get this right. And so that that is my base level assumption that, you know, if, if they don't get it right, chances are a lot of the other companies don't get it right. Mm-hmm. And the other data point I use is I've obviously worked for, you know, many, many more organizations as a coach. And so I know a thing or two about what they do and what they do well and what they don't do well. So, um, you know, I think the, 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 the pitfall that a lot of these organizations are, are falling into is the fact that they get onboarding right for pretty much everyone. You know, if you look at, you know, the basic onboarding, uh, such as admin arrangements, um, business orientation training, uh, legal and, and compliance training, um, any, somewhere between 85 and 88% of the companies get those right. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And which, which kind of, you know, begs the question, what, what about the other 12 to 15% that don't even get those basics right? Mm. But as soon as you start to move into what I call higher value activities that would really serve, particularly the executive level leadership well, um, the numbers start to drop between 29 and 53%, 52%. So only, you know, one out of three or, more, or one out of two get that right. So one of those is, aligning expectations with the line manager and the dive reports. And again, it sounds quite simple. Um, and as I you know, just explained to you, the reality is that even you know, if you are the chief executive officer, even at the board level, there, there may not be quite the alignment you wish. And uh, the same may apply to a dive reports because they may have very different ideas about your way of leading or what they need from you in order to succeed. Mm-hmm. So the second item is, organizing meaningful meetings with key stakeholders. And by that, I don't allow the argument of, oh yeah, um, you're the new CEO. Well, you know, welcome on board. Uh, your peer is gonna make some random appointments in your diary. That, that's not what I mean by that. What I mean by that is someone in LND or OD sitting down, looking at the entire C-suite, let's say, you know, in Vodafone, using the example of Vodafone, we had 12 of those. Right. So there's the, the CEO, the CFO, the, the CHRO, and so on and so forth. Mapping who are the critical stakeholders 
per position. And they will be different for the CFO than they will be for the CHRO than they will be for the CTO. And by the way, when I say stakeholders, I also mean the external ones. Don't only focus on the internal ones, right? So that is you know, currently only performed well by 33% of the organizations in that study. And then um, the, the last item here on the value chain is facilitating cultural familiarization. And again, um, you know, very few organizations have really articulated very well what their culture is all about. Mm -hmm. You know, they got values and they got, you know, leadership behaviors and competencies. But what I really mean by that is, you know, the, the really the, the stuff that is, visible but not necessarily written anywhere um, and so you know this is again part of the exercise that I sometimes conduct on behalf of my coaching clients which is an executive assimilation process so we go around and ask questions and and the executive answers a, a lot of questions as well and so that way you not only build trust but you really try to understand what makes a great leader here what is the established organization culture what are some of the landmines that you better avoid? And what are some of those that you want to have a conversation about because you don't agree with them? So, you know, in my book, I speak about earning the right to bring about change to an organizational culture. So if you're too quick, if you're too early with those, people will not believe you and will not buy into what you're preaching because they will think that you're doing a disservice to the established history and norm of the company. And if you wait for too long, David, Equally, you will have a hard time to change anything because people will turn around and say, you have been fine with everything for the last two years. Why is there now a, a, a burning desire to want to change anything? Mm -hmm. And so, so these are just some ideas around what organizations are doing. And allow me to add two more um, aspects to this one as well. So one of them is what we initially discussed, which is surely it must be very expensive if executives fail at this level. And the number is 10 to 30 times the salary. This number is from Russell Reynolds, another, you know, one of the large search firms in the world. And they have done the analysis to see what is the level of investment that goes into executives hiring. And of course, the, 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 the basic you know, number is 90%. So 90% of the cost that goes into an executive level hire is spent on their um, assessment, selection and recruiting process. And less than 10% is spent on making that same hire successful once they have been hired. Mm -hmm. So I call it the imbalance of investment in organizations where you throw all the money you have at the best exec and then you hope that they are going to succeed and let them to kind of you know, <laughs> swim mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the muddy waters. And so, so, so that's really something that a lot of organizations could get right as well. Yeah, I, I, I heard it said, uh, and uh, and I'll keep my source anonymous that uh, um, that they disagreed that uh, the executives and we're talking the most senior executives should have a coach because that's why we pay them the big bucks. Uh, but uh, but what you're saying there is that paying them money does not doesn't equip them anymore uh, to be able to deal with the uh, the nuances of your organisation uh, and uh, and its stakeholders during during what is such an important transition. Yes. I mean, in my book, I talk about epic CEO transition failures. Mm -hmm. And they, believe it or not, this was the easiest part of the research for my book. I have 155 citations in my book. That's a 22 page long part of my book that just talks about the research. Mm -hmm. And this was the easiest part. Just go on Google and type in epic CEO failures and you will find 
plenty. Now, I picked four of the world's most admired companies, a champion in their own rights and in their own industry. They all have had CEO transition failures. So this is SAP, Hewlett-Packard, Boeing, and Uber. Hmm. Now, those execs, those CEOs that have failed, and I think we can call it the failure if they left the role after six months or 10 months, have been paid somewhere between two uh, to $7.2 million just as a payout. Hmm. So this is like the severance pay. Now, when I say 10 to 30 times, that's the actual magnitude of the you know cost that comes to the organization. In the case of HP, it was actually in the billions because mm-hmm. the market cap started to kind of you know glide down pretty quickly after this gentleman, Dr. Leo Apotheka, had been appointed. And obviously he was not cutting it. And so again, you know, it can be a lot more than the 10 to 30. The 10 to 30 times is an average figure. Yeah. And in the news, uh, only last week, uh, my old company, Disney, due to uh, a lower than expected share price, uh, dispensed with Bob Chapek and uh, reinstated Bob Iger uh, after uh, a couple of years of him him being away. So, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of that. So 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 I'm not going to cast aspersions and say that Bob himself was a uh, uh, Bob Chapek was a was a failure in, in particular areas. But you know, it's in the news. You know, this is you know th- what we're talking about here isn't uh, uh, you know something that uh, that that we shouldn't uh, all be worried about uh, in our organisations. It's uh, it, it's very much a, a should be a priority. So so going on to to your role uh, then, David, I'd love to know uh, how how a, a transition coach would work and and in particularly how that might work in partnership with the different parties whether that be the executive themselves uh, whether that be their line manager if we're talking about c-suite and then the ceo um and um in particular we've we've got a, a, an hr and learning and development audience so i wonder how they might be involved as well Yes. So first off, I think if I were to reflect on what is the mix of the leaders that come to work with me, roughly 50% of them um, are self-funding. So this is the organization is either not supporting them or they don't feel quite ready to come forward and ask for that uh, sort of support or for whatever reason they prefer to, to do this as a private matter. The other 50% are sponsored engagements. So these are organizations that want to support their executive leaders. Uh, Interestingly enough, I often have clients from organizations that have a fully fledged internal coaching faculty. So one of the cases I describe in my book is is a CHRO of one of the big four. They actually have a three digit number of in-house accredited coaches that work with their senior partners, you know, on the partner track. And so despite that, that, that organization, you know, decided to bring me in because they know that for the C-level, that there can be a lot of landmines around confidentiality and, you know, being really neutral um, and, and, you know, to the organization and to, to everything that that's, you know, related to the coaching engagement. So I would say there are a few things that, you know, are important. The first one is, you know, whether it's me or someone else like myself, uh, we need to apply an executive level appropriate, appropriate framework to work with that leader. Um, I have introduced to the world the double diamond framework of executive transitions. It's a seven phase framework. It lasts anywhere between 12 to 18 months and it's you know uh, composed of different components. So that's the first thing I would say. So whatever coach you bring in, please, please, please make sure you don't bring in just a leadership development coach. 
Um, you know, this is the analogy that I use, David. You know, God forbid if I had a heart issue, the last person I would want to see on the planet is my GP, as much as I love the gentleman, because I really would want to see someone who's deeply specialized in the issue that I have. And that's the only person I'm going to trust. So that's the, the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say when you spoke about the LND is, you know, bringing back the 90 to 10% kind of imbalance of investment. Um, you know, I think the, the number is something like 360 billion that is spent on learning and development. Yeah. How about we took another one or two percentage of that number and spend it on the, arguably what should be the, the, the most higher, the most senior high in the organization. So the C-suite and, and maybe the, the level below. And to pr provide them and equip them with an executive transition coach, because we know this is something that's working. It's not just my fantasy here, but there are studies that prove how we can you know, shorten the time to productivity, how we can reduce the derailment risk, how we can ensure that the performance goals are met, not just for the executive, but for the entire leadership team. There are even studies I cite in my book that speak about commercial momentum, revenue growth and profitability between the leaders and the laggards who get boarding and transition right or don't. The other tools that I use are always dependent on the case. I mean, to give you an idea, one of the tools that I use is a study that was conducted by DDI. And that looks at, you know, the angle that sometimes executives take, which is I just copy and paste what's made me successful into my new position. And this is where the coach comes in. And this is where we sit down and start to reflect on, okay, I, I appreciate and acknowledge everything that has made you to get to this position. How is that going to be different from here on? Let's start to map out what makes a successful, let's say, CEO. You have been a successful CFO all your life, all your career. Now you have gotten the first CEO opportunity, right? What needs to shift when it comes to skills, when it comes to activities, when it comes to basics, such as how much time do I need to spend on what core activity? And so these are examples of how you can work with an executive leader to help them um, reflect on what is crucial going forward. And that may or may not necessarily be what's made them successful. Some of the other tools that I use are something very simple. I, would, I wouldn't even call it a diagnostic, but uh, it's a simple assessment around the expected transition challenges that they foresee that's coming their way. You know, I give you the five patty kind of example of my own, and, and, and it may or may not align with what the executive believes is coming their way. And so they will have a high level idea around what to expect. And then the second column of the same, you know, a diagnostic asks them, what is your level of confidence to be able to deal with this? Now, again, if I am dealing with an executive that has, you know, had five international moves throughout the last 15 years, and, and they say, I'm pretty confident here. Well, then we don't need to really go all deep in this particular aspect of the upcoming transition. But if they say, for instance, the corporate diplomacy challenge is big for me because I've always worked in family organizations where we didn't have much of it, or they say it's the big portfolio challenge. This company has got multiple units that seem to be in very different maturity levels and modus operandi. I have never done that before. So I've always you know, led a division that had, had one mission, one you know, complexity and so on. So, so we really gauge together where we need to kind of you know, go a little deeper and do a bit more support and where we you know, allow the executive to just be, you know, 
be themselves and, and deal with it because they are really equipped to do that. And these are just some examples to give you an idea around kind of the toolkits and the frameworks and how we unpack uh, what I typically uh, do is a signature year-long journey. So uh, I used to have three months programs, six months programs. I don't do any of those anymore. So anyone that wants to work with me, um, you know, if they are at the C-suite or the level below, it's a year-long engagement. Also because in most organizations, the performance cycle tend to be around the year-long uh, mark anyway. And so that that nicely aligns with that as well. Wonderful. Um, so uh, as we look to wrap up the conversation, Avid, um, I'd love to ask you um, if, so, so many of the, the things you've been discussing here, uh, whilst not brand new to, to the listener, in the context of uh, developing the CEO and the C-suite, it's, it could be something that they that they don't have exposure to, or perhaps the access that uh, that um, that that you're describing. So, could you describe uh, in what ways your book uh, can help to to unpack this for them and, and what they can expect uh, as a result of reading it? Yes. So um, again, I don't like the analogy of the first ninety days, but think of my book as the first ninety days for the C-suite. Right. So that's like the, the most basic analogy I can come up with. And so what, what's described in the book is a lot more detail that to compared to what we discussed today, which is what are the reasons for executive transition failure? And I unpack every one of those 10 and go really into, into examples as to why that is the, the case. We then look at what is the cost of failure. And again, we look at the real data around that as well. Before we then start to look at, okay, what actually works in practice? What is it that, um, and, and I call it the golden thread, it's the executive leader. So I think there are three key players that can determine the ultimate success of the executive leader. The first one is the executive themselves. They obviously have a big role to play. The second one is the um, HR uh, function or the HR person or the HR, you know, whoever owns this process. And third, and, 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 you know, but not least, is the organization. So this is either the board, or if it's the CFO, then it's the CEO, someone who has an inherent desire for this incumbent to succeed. And if all of those three players play their part, only then you really can guarantee success, right? Because you can have the best transition support if you're in a very toxic culture and, you know, diplomacy is not your thing, chances are you could still have a likelihood of fading, right? So we then start to look into that. And then in two chapters, I described in full detail how the framework needs to be applied. And this is really crucial. I mean, what I loved about the first 90 days was the simplicity of it. What I really didn't like about it was I was left to do all the work myself, mm. right? I had to create my own uh, crappy Excel spreadsheet to try to use some of the ideas in the book to bring it to life. If people buy my book as a paperback or as a hardcover, they will be getting the so-called digital companion. And the digital companion is the workbook. So the executive leader or the NND partner or the coach can use the workbook with the executive to work on the double diamond framework. So it's, it's something that is super practical. It's not just a theoretically underpinned beautiful model. I hope it is that and it really works in practice and it's something people can do. And last but not least, um, and, and again, this was a big surprise to me, David, if you were to Google the term, how to be most effective in your first 90 or 100 or 120 days, uh, back then you got something like 5.2 billion um, hits. So Google gives you plenty of ideas how to do that. 
if you were to do the exact same thing with just changing the word about the first, replacing it with last, how to be more successful in your last 90 or 100, 120 days, you get less than 1% of the same search results. Mm -hmm. So this is the last chapter of my book. Um, you know, I was uh, cheekily wanting to call it the last 90 days. I didn't do that. But this is how do you transition out of an executive role? And again, this is for me a, a, a really unexplored territory. You know, there isn't actually a single book that prepares you for that. There are about 100 books that give you an idea about the first 90 days. But there isn't a single book that gives you an idea around if I want to pass on the baton and I want to do a great job, what are the kind of things that I need to bear in mind? How can I make this a successful transition for my successor so that they don't have to endure the same pain that I had to endure when I came into this role? So that essentially wraps up the book. It's, you know, four parts of the book and the heavy kind of middle part is the real part where I speak about the framework and I give ideas about all the interventions that are proven to work and lead to success for the executive leader. Brilliant. And the book, again, is Mastering Executive Transitions. Uh, and uh, final question, Naveed, if the listener likes what they've heard today and wants to connect or follow your work, how best can they do so? Yes. So LinkedIn is my really main platform. I still don't have a website until today. And I, I'm not sure I will ever need one. Uh, but LinkedIn, Navid Nazemian, is the place to go. There's also a book landing page that really deals just with the book. It's www.masteringexecutivetransitions.com. And again, there is a link there to connect with me on LinkedIn. But really, I think LinkedIn is the place to be. And I'm quite active on it. So if I get queries or, um, you know, um, emails, in-mails, as they call it, I usually respond within 24 hours. Wonderful. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Uh, but it's all left for me to say, uh, Navidis, thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. It's been my pleasure. And, and thank you, David, not just for inviting me, but for what you bring to the LND community. I've been a huge fan of your podcast and I really, really cherish those uh, episodes that are longer than the typical 10, 20 minute ones. And I really, really want to thank you for, you know, giving the voice back to the LND community. Thank you. Unless we've been promoted to senior leadership level ourselves, then it's incredibly difficult to both empathise and successfully support this critical transition. It's important that we seek to fully understand what it means to be an executive at our organisations and help in context. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, again, for which you'll find links in the show notes. But goodbye for now.